property. Now, if you're going to build on a piece of property that you own, uh, maybe a fence or a workshop or maybe an extension on your house, then it's a good idea uh, to, to even call in a surveyor, somebody who has the tools and the knowledge, the records, to confirm that you are in fact building on the property which you own. Assuming that a piece of property is yours without checking to make sure you have a legitimate claim to it can be a really costly ordeal. You need to make sure not only that you own the property, but that you have the right authority to do what you're doing. I heard about a couple in Britain who unwittingly built a house on a piece of property which they owned, but which turned out to be uh, an ancient road that had been built by the Romans. Now, it didn't look like a road, but apparently the records showed that it was. No big deal, right? Well, they built an extension on their house over the space uh, where that road was. And apparently there is an old act of the British Parliament which protects people's right-of-way to those ancient byways and pathways. So, this video that I saw showed neighbors demanding that their right to use that road be honored. And so they forced their way into the house just to walk through it on the other side. So it was wild to watch these angry people, and they were angry, yelling, who had really no business in this couple's home, stomp through the house with their muddy shoes on and their trekking poles, no less. I don't know why you need a trekking pole to go from one side of a living room to another, but they had them. And it seemed like they were just trying to prove a point. Now, whether or not the couple who built there or these belligerent travelers were right to do what they did, I'll let you be the judge. But as outrageous as a situation as that is, it really does prove the point why having a legitimate claim to your property matters and why having a legitimate claim that informs how you use that property matters. Now, we're at a point in the book of Joshua, and we will be for the next few weeks, where we're going to be looking at the boundaries of the inheritance which was given to each of the tribes of Israel. Now, while I think that we'll all agree that chasing Canaanites through the hills of Israel with Joshua is a whole lot more exciting than hunting down boundary markers, we shouldn't consider this to be a dull moment, a sub-feature in the story of redemption. This is actually a, a crowning moment of God's promises, the promise that he made to Abraham to make his children numerous as the dust of the earth and as the stars in the heavens and to make them inherit this land as part of his blessing. This is the moment when all those promises become tangible, like when a husband carries his bride across the threshold of their house for the first time. This is the moment when the word to God's people is no longer wait, but enter, enjoy, flourish, live. Uh, This is the moment when faith became sight. And so this section of Joshua is incredibly helpful to believers like you and me since it not only assures us of the faithfulness of God's promises, but it also teaches us how to wait well on the promises of our inheritance, which Jesus has secured for us, the promise of eternal life in the presence of God. So some of what we're going to look at today in this chapter is familiar territory, or at least it should be if you've been following with us in the, in, through this series in Joshua. 
Uh, chapter 13 follows the pattern that chapter 12 did, laying out the details and the boundaries of the land that was inherited specifically by those two and a half tribes that settled on the east side of the Jordan River in the land that was secured while Moses was still in charge. So as we read this, you're going to be reading some familiar names like uh, those two really important Ammonite kings, Og and Sihon. And we're also going to be seeing some significant places mentioned here like Gilead and Mount Hermon and Baal Peor. So my goal in the time that we have this morning is not so much to make sure that you have an exhaustive understanding of where these places were, but but my, my goal here is to bring some of the more important details about this account specifically and what it says to us about the hope that we have in God's faithfulness and the inheritance that we have through our Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's look at our passage this morning. Now, normally I ask you to stand for the reading of God's word, and we want to continue that. However, this is a long passage with a lot of long names. So I'm going to go ahead and just let you, I'm going to give you a pass. You can remain seated as I read uh, our passage for us this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Now, therefore, God says to Joshua, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and a half the tribe of Manasseh. With the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites, the Gadites, they received their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses the servant of the Lord gave them, from Eror, which is at the edge of the valley of Arnon, and the city that is in the middle of the valley, and all the tableland of Mediba as far as Dibon, and all the cities of Sion, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon as far as the boundary of the Ammonites and Gilead, and the region of the Geshurites, and the Machathites, and all Mount Hermon, and all Bashan to Selakah, all the kingdom of Og and Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth and in Edirei. He alone was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. These Moses had struck and driven out. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Machathites. But Geshur and Makath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to him. And Moses gave an inheritance to the tribe of the people of Reuben, according to their clans. So their territory was from Aror which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and the city that is in the middle of the valley, and all the tableland by Mediba, with Heshbon and all its cities that are in the tableland, Dibon, and Bamath Baal, and Beth Baal Ma'an, and Jehaz, and Kedemoth, and Miphath, and Kiriathaim, oh wow, that even got me, Kiriathaim, and Sibma, and Zareth Shahar, on the hill of the valley, and Beth Peor, and the slopes of Pisgah, and Beth Jishamoth, that is, all the cities of the tableland, and the kingdom of Sion, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses defeated with the leaders of Midian, Evi, Rakim, and Zur, and Hur, and Reba, the princes of Sion, who, who lived in the land. Balaam also, the son of Beor, the one who practiced divination, was killed with the sword by the people of Israel among the rest of their slain. And the border of the people of Reuben was the Jordan as a boundary. This was the inheritance of the people of Reuben according to their lands with their cities and villages. 
Moses gave an inheritance also to the tribe of Gad, to the people of Gad, according to their clans. Their territory was Jazer and all the cities of Gilead, and half the land of the Ammonites to Eror, which is east of Rabbah, and from Heshbon to Ramath Mizpah and Betonim, and from Mahanaim to the territory of Debir, and in the valley of Beth Haram, Beth Nimrah, Succoth, and Zaphon, the rest of the kingdom of Sion, king of Heshbon, having the Jordan as a boundary, to the lower end of the sea of the Chinnereth, eastward beyond the Jordan. This is the inheritance of the people of Gad, according to their clans, with their cities and villages. And Moses gave an inheritance to the half-tribe of Manasseh. It was allotted to the half-tribe of the people of Manasseh, according to their clans. Their region extended from Mahanaim through all Bashan, the whole kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, and all the towns of Jer, which are in Bashan, sixty cities, and half of Gilead, and Ashtaroth, and Edirei, the cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. These were allotted to the people of Mekir, the son of Manasseh, for the half of the people of Mekir, according to their clans. These are the inheritances that Moses distributed in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan east of Jericho. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. This is the word of the Lord. Now, do we have a slide? Okay, perfect. Now, I never do this, but I do have a slide for you to help make these a little more tangible. It's a little small, so we may have to work on that. Okay. Anyway, the focus of this passage as we look at it is, unsurprisingly, the inheritance of Israel east of the Jordan. It legitimizes the claims that the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to the land which they possessed east of the Jordan River. It's important to notice how Scripture speaks of how they came to possess this land. This is not land which they took for themselves. It was land that was given to them through Moses by God. And therefore, these tribes had rightful claim to it to use it. Now, our passage speaks here to the inheritance of the tribe of Levi and the fate of a prophet named Balaam. It also records God's faithfulness uh, in keeping his promises. So while that is the theme that reigns over this passage, I think that there are also three important lessons for us here which teach us about how we should respond rightly to the blessings and the benefits which God gives to his people. So what I want to do here is to look at three kinds of inheritance that we find in this chapter and how they teach us to respond to God. So, We have three types of inheritance. First, we're going to look at an inheritance of land. An inheritance of land. Second, we will look at an inheritance of fire. An inheritance of fire. And third, we will look at an inheritance of the sword. An inheritance of the sword. As we make our way through each one of these, our goal is not just to see the substance of it, but also to see how they relate to teaching us how to live rightly in it. So, As we look first at this inheritance of the land, what we want to see here is that as God has given us a great inheritance in Christ, we are called to wait well. And one of the ways that we see that we're called to wait well is we see that waiting well means committing to full obedience. We wait well by committing ourselves to full obedience. 
land is the most obvious component of the inheritance which God gave, which God gives to Israel in this chapter. The land of Canaan was particularly important, not just because God had included it in the covenant which he made with Abraham and his descendants, but it's also important for the way that the land represented God's favor, his presence, and his purposes for blessing all of the earth through Israel. Joshua's role as the leader of Israel has progressed as we've read this book. Uh, It's progressed from him leading the armies of Israel on the battlefield in a time of war to now uh, in a time of peace distributing that land to them. If we think back to the beginning of this book, then you may remember that God had commissioned Joshua specifically to make Israel inherit this land. Uh, Joshua's work, therefore, is not complete uh, with, the, with the ending of the clanging of sword on shield. Rather, it, it's complete with the way that Israel is now receiving the land which had been laid out for them. In verse 7, God commands Joshua to divide the land up as an inheritance for the nine and a half tribes which lived west of the Jordan River. Uh, but as we read this, to our surprise, we, we see that verse 8 actually goes back to talking about the inheritance which was given to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe half of Manasseh, which were on the east side of the Jordan River. And while that might seem repetitious to you and me, maybe out of order, by starting here with the land that was secured under Moses, our author is once again emphasizing to us how this land is as much an inheritance which God gave Israel as the land which was given on the west side of the river. This is all one inheritance. It's all one blessing from God. As we look at the dimensions of this land, we realize this really is not a small amount of space. This was an area which stretches the whole length north and south of the rest of the land which is given to the other nine and a half tribes. And the description that we have in this passage actually follows from south to north. So if you look here on the map, you'll see... I'm, I'm just going to walk over here. This is... There's all... Yeah. All right. A lot of unconventional things happening right now. Okay. All right. So over here, we have, this is Moab. This is not part of Israel. This is Reuben, Gad, Manasseh. This is the area that we're talking about today. And Joshua 13 is starting south and going north. So that's what we're going to look at right now. So first we begin with the tribe of Reuben. Now Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob and Leah, and it's mentioned appropriately here first. Reuben was bordered by the Ammonites to the east and by the Moabites to the south. Uh, To the west we see that there's the Jordan River and the Dead Sea, and then to the north is the tribe of Gad. Now this land uh, made up roughly half of the territory that Israel took over after defeating King Sion. Next, we have the tribe of Gad. Uh, They were located north of Reuben. Uh, We see that they received the rest of King Sihon's territory, with the Ammonites remaining to the east, the Jordan River to their west, and the half-tribe of Manasseh to their north. In the description that is given to us here, you'll see that Gad received the territory of Jazer, which was historically significant, uh, and the city also, they received all the cities of Gilead, uh, which was known as being a really fertile place uh, to live in, and where there was a unique medicinal balm that we see showing up in different places in Scripture. 
Now to the north of Gad, and the next territory mentioned here, is the land that is given to the half-tribe of Manasseh. Uh, Verse 31 indicates that there were a number of different clans here, but it mentions especially the descendants of Machir, who was notable not only because he was one of the sons of Manasseh and the grandson of Joseph, but because his descendants are the ones who actually captured this region of of Gilead in Numbers 32. Now, since this is only part of one of the tribes of Israel, it really is surprising to see how much land was given to them. And to them, Moses granted the whole kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, all of the cities uh, and towns of Jair, half of Gilead, and a few others. This is a massive area composed of 60 different cities. The land which was given to Manasseh both east and west of the Jordan River was rivaled in size only by what was given to the tribe of Judah, which makes this allotment truly impressive. Manasseh was the furthest north of the tribes that were east of the Jordan, uh, with the territory following along what we know as the Sea of Galilee, bordered to the north by Syria and to the east by the Ammonites and then to the south by Gad. Now, it's worth noting how this distribution of the land actually reflects to some extent the blessings which Jacob gave to his sons at the end of his life, which are recorded for us in Genesis chapter 49. Now, although Reuben was the oldest son, he was not granted preeminence among his brothers because he had deeply shamed himself and his father by laying with one of his father's concubines. That shame actually bears itself out in Reuben's inheritance, which falls more or less on the outskirts of the nation in close proximity to Moab and Ammon. Now, Gad was known as a raider. Uh, He was always in conflict with his enemies, which were numerous, uh, which you see he's in a very precarious position based on his position with the Ammonites. Manasseh, on the other hand, was one of Joseph's two sons, the other being Ephraim. Now, both Manasseh and Ephraim were fruitful and numerous, though Ephraim, the younger son, enjoyed the greater blessing. Later, when Israel becomes a divided kingdom after King Solomon had died, the northern uh, kingdom Israel was commonly just referred to as Ephraim because that became the ruling seat of the rest of the tribes to the north. So as we look at this inheritance, we see that Joseph sort of receives this double portion, both in the way that his sons make up two of the tribes of Israel, and also in the amount of land and the honor that they received. Now, to this point, we see God really has kept his word. Not only did he bring the people of Israel into the land that he had promised to give them, but he honored the words which were uttered by Jacob, their forefather, who prophesied to his sons what was to become of the inheritance that God was giving them. As we read these territories and their boundaries, the faithfulness of God to his promises and the word that he had given his servant Jacob is coming true right before our eyes. So as we read these places and these names, how these lands were appointed to these two and a half tribes, we are seeing a vivid display of God's power to accomplish everything that he said he will do. But there's another message here for us in this section, and it's a warning. Even as as the book of Joshua exalts the faithfulness of God, who always keeps his promises, it also makes us consider the danger of our faithlessness. Look with me here at verse 13. Here 
in the midst of this overview of how God gave the people this land, we see that the stage is set before us for real trouble. This is what we're told. Yet, the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Machathites. But Geshur and Machath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Now, Geshur and Machath proved in, history, in Israel's history to be real problems, even up until the day of King David. Actually, Absalom, David's son, the one who tried to take over the kingdom, he was born to a woman who was a Geshurite princess. And the Machathites were part of an Ammonite coalition of a thousand men who fought David in 2 Samuel 10. These are not good people. These are dangerous people. If Israel had listened to God's command and driven them out of the land, they could have avoided a lot of pain. It was not as if God was unwilling to give them victory over these people. After all, he tells Joshua only a few verses prior to where we started this morning that he himself would drive these people out from before the people, from before Israel. No, the fault here does not lie with God. God's faithfulness is not what's at stake here. The fault lies with the tribes of Israel who it seems grew complacent in the midst of peace and the prosperity which they had come to enjoy once they inherited the land. It was, their, their complacency grew to be so much that they failed to fully obey God's command. Their comfort led, or their comfort led to complacency and their complacency led to rebellion and sin. As we read the book of Joshua, we're meant to rejoice in the faithfulness of God. His faithfulness to keep all of the promises that he made to his people. But we're also warned here by the author who strategically informs us about the waning vigilance of these people to obey him. In the conflict of the conquest in Canaan, these two and a half tribes showed true resolve, true faithfulness. They left their flocks, they left their families, and they fought alongside their brothers under Joshua. God drove out nations and kings before them, peoples who were greater than them. But when peace had come and their mission in the West was complete, these tribes flagged and failed. They obeyed God, but they didn't obey Him fully. It's like they let off the gas. They were content to coast. And even while, even while there was still much work to be done, even though they knew God's promise that He would be with them, that He would drive out their enemies before them. Now, I think that every Christian who has ever read the Fox's Book of Martyrs or Luke's account of the Acts of the Early Church come away from those, those books and those accounts asking themselves, if I am called to give up my life for Christ as some of these men and women were, will I answer that call? But will I be bold to stand with Christ, even if it costs me my life? But I think that Joshua 13.13 asks a different question of us. Will we be faithful to obey God, not only in the times that are hard, but also in the times that are comfortable? Will we continue to run the race that is set before us with dogged determination to obey Him in every moment of every day? And will we fight temptation to give, will we fight temptation to give God only partial obedience? 
Dale Davis notably observes that while we may find our tenacity to live for Christ at an all-time high in the midst of Satan's heaviest assaults, we often lack the determination to endure in the day-to-day. I think that is so true. It seems to me that the deadliest moments in a believer's life, the deadliest moments that we face, are not the moments when the battle is hot and the struggle is hard, but rather in the times when comfort abounds. Perhaps we are in the most danger, not when the enemies of our faith threaten our lives, but when we are at peace and prosperity on our couch. Paul told the Philippians that he had learned the secret not only of facing hunger and need, but also of facing plenty and abundance, as if times of comfort can be deadly for our fellowship just as much as times of hardship. Threats and intimidations are only one of Satan's tools. He is often more successful in luring Christians away from faithfulness by distracting us with comfort, luring us away from the path that Christ has called us to walk, the road of the cross. I once heard an Iraqi pastor say, It is not a difficult thing to die for Jesus, but it is a very difficult thing to live for him. Faithfulness, we must understand, is not proved in one moment of valor, in one moment of obedience. No, faithfulness is proved in the way that it endures. Brothers and sisters, let us pray for grace, not just to endure the times of suffering, but to endure the times of plenty, so that the off, what we offer to God is not partial obedience, like these tribes ended up offering to God, but full obedience. Let us pray that God will keep us from the allure of temporary comforts which this world has to offer, and instead that the Spirit would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and thereby through his perfect obedience has secured for us an eternal inheritance worth waiting on. And that brings us to consider the second inheritance that we see in this chapter, an inheritance of fire. Now, as we're talking about what it means to wait well on the inheritance that Jesus has secured for us, we need to understand that waiting well means treasuring the portion that we have in the God who rescues us from our shame. The majority of this chapter is focused on the distribution of the land east of the Jordan River. Uh, But then in verse 14 and then in verses 32 and 33, our author takes a very conspicuous break from describing land boundaries to describing a different sort of inheritance that God gave the people of Israel. These verses are focused on the inheritance which God gave to the tribe of Levi. And so what stands out about this is not that it's an inheritance of land. No, that it's an inheritance of fire. We read this in verse 14. To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to him. Now, how do you like that? Moses himself was from the tribe of Levi. His brother Aaron was anointed by God to serve as the first high priest. And yet we see here that the tribe of Levi received no allotment, no inheritance in the land which was to be called by their name. 
Now, earlier I mentioned how God's distribution of the land among Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh reflect the blessing which Jacob spoke over his sons in, in Genesis 49. In that same passage, Jacob had something to say about Levi, and let me tell you what he said about his son. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed by their anger, for it, it cursed is their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Those are harsh words. That's from their, that's from their dad. Okay, I would hardly call that a blessing. That sounds like a curse. Jacob had harsh words to describe these brothers. Now, if you're not familiar with what Jacob is referring to, what had happened is that there was a situation involving one of Jacob's daughters who was horrifically treated by the prince of a town called Shechem in response to the way that he treated their sister. Levi and Simeon tricked that prince and the men of that town into being circumcised. And then while they were in their pain, they slaughtered them to the last man. It was an act of terrible bloodshed that Jacob never forgot, which played out, we see, in this blessing, or this curse, really, of Levi being excluded from having an inheritance in the land. Levi and his descendants carried this stigma of being violent men with them in and out of Egypt. They were a people of the sword. But the good news is that God is greater than the shame of our sin. And he redeemed the tribe of Levi from their shame. You may remember that after Israel came out of Egypt on the slopes of Mount Sinai, when Moses had gone up to meet with God to receive the Ten Commandments, to receive the law, all of the other tribes except for Levi demanded that Aaron make a graven image for them so that they could worship it. And he caved to the pressure. But we, what we read in the book of Exodus is that the rest of the tribe of Levi stood fast. And when Moses came back the mountain in disgust and anger at what the people were doing, it was the swords of the tribe of Levi which were taken up once again. But this time, it was in defense of the holiness of God, enforcing justice on those who worshipped that, that idol. On that day, the tribe of Levi became known not for their act of violence, but for their zeal for the holiness of God. And it resulted in God appointing the Levites to serve before him as priests for all of Israel. On that day, Levi became an emissary, someone who served the, the people before God. In that day, God took Levi's curse and he changed it into his blessing. The tribe of Levi didn't receive a portion of the land to call their own. They received something greater, a place in the house of the Lord, a place to serve God's people day in and day out, ministering before him in the presence of his glory. Levi's portion, his inheritance was greater because it was uniquely bound up in the Lord. 
Verse 14 says that the Levite's inheritance was to share in the offerings by fire which were offered up to God. Uh, what we see, that, we see what that means described in Numbers 18 where God shows how he provided richly for the Levites and their needs by designating a portion of every offering that was brought by the people to be sacrificed to God to them. That was what they ate and drank of. They were provided for by the rest of the nation. They participated in the very offerings which were given to God. What's more, God appointed cities throughout all of Israel for them with pastures around those cities so that wherever the people lived in the land of Canaan, there, close at hand, there was a Levite to lead the people in obedience to God and to his law. They were scattered in cities all over so that God's people would never be without testimony or instruction. So Levi may not have received land or territory, but he did receive mercy and grace and an inheritance in God in a way that was truly unique from what the other tribes received. Verse 33 puts it like this, To the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. So the inheritance of the tribe of Levi was God himself. And that's a theme that we see actually runs regularly through the book of Joshua. We find it here. We find it in Joshua 14, which talks about the inheritance of the tribes west of the Jordan River. And then we find an entire chapter dedicated specifically to them in Joshua 21. In that chapter, we see that God delighted in prevailing over the curses and the shame of the Levite Sim. And we see here, how also reflected in that, and how God has removed the shame of our sin in Christ. I mean, as we read Jacob's blessing, how he, how he spoke of Levi, I mean, doesn't your heart sink a little bit to think that a father could say this of his own son? God turned a curse into a blessing in a way that only he could do. And so he has done that in the life of everyone who has trusted Christ for their salvation. You see, Jesus took the curse of our sin on himself. The sword of God's judgment, which we deserve, was wielded against him. And he paid for our rebellion and removed our shame by shedding his blood on the cross. This is the measure of God's love, even that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died so that we might die ourselves to the curse of sin and death. And then he rose so that through faith in him, we might have new life as well. So if you are in Christ, then you have something that even the tribe of Levi did not get to experience themselves. They were called to serve the nation as priests. And so we see that through Christ, Peter says, we, become, we have become a nation of priests. They served in the tabernacle and then later in the temple, shielded by the curtain which separated them from the Holy of Holies. But Paul says that we are, we are the temple of God, that through Christ the Spirit of God now dwells in believers and seals us for the hope that is above. Whereas countless bulls and goats and sheep and doves were sacrificed to atone for sin, we have a great high priest who entered the Holy of Holies in heaven by means of his own blood and has made atonement that stands once and for all so that all who trust in him are made perfect in God's sight, bound to him in an everlasting covenant. This is the inheritance of every sinner who repents and believes in Christ. 
Now tell me, do you think that the Levites bemoaned the fact that they didn't receive any land? Do you think they complained to each other that they didn't get a space where they could say, this is Levi? No, they didn't do that. Why? Because they had something better. They had what the prophet Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah 56, 4 and 5. To those who hold fast to my covenant, God says, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. The inheritance of Levi was the Lord himself, a place in his house where they dwelled in the joy of his presence day in and day out. If we have received an inheritance of Christ that is greater than theirs, then shall we complain if we do not have worldly comforts? Shall we complain if we have to endure temporary hardships in, in, for an eternal glory? No, we shall not complain. And if we are to avoid the pitfall of partial obedience then we must be unsatisfied with any glory and any comfort that falls short of heaven. Which brings us now to consider our third point and a very different kind of inheritance than what we've seen, the inheritance of the sword. As we think about what it means to wait well on the inheritance that God has secured for us, we see here that waiting well means loving God with a heart that has true and exclusive affections for him and for what he loves. The inheritance of the sword is the inheritance which Balaam, the son of Beor, received. Balaam was a soothsayer, or a seer, who functioned as a prophet. Balaam was not an Israelite. He was from Mesopotamia. When Israel was coming out of Egypt with Moses into the land of Moab, Balak, king of the Moabites, hired Balaam to come up and to curse Israel. Because he saw the nation as it was coming out, and he saw he was no match for these people. Now, when Balak's messengers first came to Balaam, God warned him, You shall not go up with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. But Balaam was hungry for money. And he kept asking God to let him go. And God finally did let him go. But only on the condition that Balaam said only what God told him to say. And we see in Numbers 22 about how on, on the way, uh, that on Balaam's way to meet with the king Balak, God set an angel in the path to kill him. Now Balaam did not see this angel, but apparently his donkey did. And this happened three times that the donkey saw the angel of the Lord on the road with the sword ready to kill Balaam and that it moved out of the way, even out, and ran off the road, enduring furious beatings and curses from Balaam, until finally God opened the donkey's mouth to speak to him. And then he opened Balaam's eyes to see the angel who was poised to strike him down. So when Balaam finally arrived and spoke, the words that he said, he could only speak a blessing of Israel, much to the anger of the king of Moab. Now, Balaam's story is truly unique, and so he often makes it into the Sunday school lessons. As a prophet, as a seer, he had all of the marks of what we might think of as a godly person. 
But what the story of Balaam reveals is that he had no love for God and no love for God's people. He was a prophet for hire. The affections of his heart were for selfish gain. Despite Balaam's experience on the road, despite the fact that God had to open up the mouth of one of the most stubborn animals on the planet to speak to him, his heart remained hard, not only towards God's people, but towards God himself. We learn later how Balaam instructed the king of Moab about how he could gain an advantage over Israel. You see, Balaam, with his pedigree and with what he knew about God, knew that the only way he could, he could get Israel to fall, to be cursed, was to disrupt their relationship with God. And so, he told the king of Moab later to send women from his kingdom into the midst of the people to entice the men of Israel to sexual sin. They did this, and it led to a plague among the people. It was one of the darkest, most terrible days in Israel's history, and Balaam was the instigator. For his work, Balaam received the inheritance of the sword. God's promise to Abraham came true for him. When God told Abraham, those who bless you I will bless, but those who curse you I will curse, that fell on this prophet. Now lots of people know the story of Balaam's donkey. But they don't know the rest of the story, and that's a tragedy, because this verse makes a very serious point to us. Make no mistake. Prophets, preachers, teachers, they will not escape judgment if they do not abide by the message of warning which they preach to others. I can think of something of nothing so awful as a pastor who preaches the gospel and yet does not believe it himself. Balaam loved silver and gold. He cared more about what he could get out of God than he cared for God and his people. Oh, how different his inheritance is from that of the Levites, isn't it? The Levites received God, they forfeited land, and they were glad about it. Balaam refused God and went for the gold, and he suffered for it. Balaam chose the temporary pleasures over eternal joy and satisfaction in God. Now, as we read about Balaam, how he received the just fruits of his sinful, selfish heart, let us take his his warning. This is the same warning of the parable of the prodigal son, which indicts the two sons who loved their father's wealth more than they loved their father. God is not a means to an end. He himself is the end. He alone can satisfy the desires of our heart. He created us to be glad with a gladness that can only be found in Him. The inheritance of those who seek their happiness apart from God are destined to judgment the way that Balaam was. His feet followed after the twisted desires of his sinful heart and it led him to death. What a tragedy. What a tragedy that a man who was regarded with so much respect who talked and conversed with God himself, who knew the promises and knew the excellencies of God firsthand, chose to love money more. It is a tragedy, a tragedy that lives on even today, since there is no shortage of teachers and preachers and self-proclaimed prophets and apostles who wield their influence to get earthly treasure. Beware. 
brothers and sisters, of those who use their influence and their authority and their position to try and get earthly gain for themselves. Seek yourselves what Jesus tells us to seek, the treasures, the riches which are in heaven, which moth nor rust destroy, which thieves do not break in and steal. Paul actually warns Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 about those who are trying to use God to get wealth. He says that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some, Paul says, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Is that not what happened to Balaam? It is. He had the form of godliness. He was a prophet for crying out loud. But he had no love for God and no love for God's people. He longed for a different kind of inheritance, but all he found was the edge of a sword. The point is this. Take care that you do not believe the lie which Balaam believed. The lie that he could be happier with stuff than he could be with God. Balaam had the form of godliness, but he had not the fruit of godliness, and it destroyed him. If he had only sought refuge with God in and among God's people, he would have experienced a very different end. Godliness is a means to great gain, but not the kind of gain of temporary pleasures, the gain of eternal glory with Christ. Christ came so that sinners like you and me might have that glory with him, that we might be co-heirs with him. So let us heed this warning. Let us test the desires of our heart. God's wrath is coming against sin the same way that it came against Balaam. And it is all too easy for us to assure ourselves that we are in God's good graces because of the ministries that we're involved in or because of the good things that we've done, forgetting that those things do not save us. Only Christ can do that. So let us test the affections of our hearts. Let us not look to the spiritual experiences or to our knowledge of the Bible or to our grasp of theology or to any list of achievements we might have for our hope. Let us avoid the error of Balaam who chose money and title and fame over God. Rather, let let our hearts say with that old hymn, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning thanking you for the rich inheritance which we have in Jesus. The inheritance which he has purchased for us at the cost of his own blood. Who has seen love like that? What a deep mystery it is to know that you, the holy God, the creator of all things, have regard for men and women such as we are, sinners, and that you have set your love on us, that you have sent your son, and that you have made us beautiful in him, beautiful in your sight and acceptable and worthy. Father, you have told us that the riches and the inheritance of Christ in heaven riches and the inheritance of eternal life. And we ask, Father, that you would give us the strength and the courage to wait well on that inheritance. We ask that you would give us the strength 
to trust you, to finish the task, to run the race you set before us. We ask, Father, that you would fill our hearts with the joy of knowing you, that we would treasure you above all things. And we pray that you would protect us, that you would give us uh, hearts that are truly affectionate for you and for what you love. And I pray this all in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.